Writer and producer Rebecca Walker has contributed to the global conversation about race, gender, power, and the evolution of the human family for three decades. Author and editor of seven best-selling books on multiracial identity, black cool, and ambivalent motherhood, she co-founded the Third Wave Fund, which makes grants to women and transgender youth working for social justice. For her efforts, she was named by Time magazine as one of the most influential leaders of her generation. To either, you know, help people figure something out in their own lives or to further the conversation about usually things that are very difficult, you know, mm -hmm. like race or class or gender or separation or familial pain or something meaningful, you know, to help people. You know, what change can you make in the world? And I think that's Absolutely. definitely... Yes, definitely. Um, okay. Because I never just write just for writing's sake. I'm yeah. always writing to try to help people in their lives and to be with them in that process is mm -hmm. really important to me. So when I sit down to write a book, I'm always thinking about how it will relate to them, how it will relate to the reader, how it can transform something in all of us, you know, not just for me, but for, for them. And it's very important. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you talked about the wound that I, I found it so inspiring, your book, Baby Love. Mm. I don't have children, but I can see you talk about motherhood as healing. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy that you read that. I love that book. Many people don't know it somehow, but it's like the book that got buried. What was your question? It wasn't a question. It was more about I had not thought of motherhood as a healing process. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. and neither had I. I grew up mm -hmm. in a community where, you know, I should be empowered by being Secretary of State, and I was never really told that having a child could be one of the most empowering things possible, mm -hmm. and yet... I longed for a child, and once I had one, I realized that I grew more as a human being through mm -hmm. the choice of motherhood than yeah. just about any other endeavor, really. I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. because it's so much about letting go of the self and making sure that you provide not just for your child, but you start to think much more clearly about providing for the whole next generation. Right, the whole community, the yeah. whole the whole future, like mm -hmm. because you're seeing it's your child that you mm -hmm. adore so deeply. It's going to be going out into the world, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years after. And even though I was very committed to the future before I had a son, it intensifies the need to want to be engaged in changing the world for right. him, you know. Right. So, and also just to feel that I could do it, that I could mm -hmm. raise a healthy child, you know, mm -hmm. was very powerful because. I grew up as a child of divorce and being very injured in some ways and not knowing whether or not I could actually do something different, you know. And writing Baby Love was very helpful for me in that process because I was able to express a lot of my doubts and anxieties about it, you know, mm -hmm. and talking about everything from abortion and feeling as if I had been, you know, sterilized when I had my abortion when I was younger to all of the different ways I sabotaged relationships because I didn't feel I deserved on some level to be a mother or yeah. that it was the right thing. Or it could lead to that, so let's just avoid it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, And yet motherhood, sort of moving through all of the memories of the ways in which I avoided motherhood while I was pregnant sort of prepared me for the moment of be being a mother. When my son was born at the end of the book, it was as if I had cleared all of the doubts through the writing process. And I also felt like I was in a good dialogue with many, many women in my generation who have the same ambivalence, you know. And They're so, afraid to say it. Right? I mm -hmm. mean, and so again, it's this sense of writing for myself, but also 
feeling like I'm connected to my peers, to my cohorts, to my generation, and voicing things that I think are relevant to all of us, you know, or many of us, I should say. And yes, so that's one thing that comes across because you've edited a number of anthologies and there is a constant, even with your own memoirs, there is this dialogue, if I go back from memory, in black, white and Jewish, and in the beginning you're almost you know, asking yourself, how does one go about it? Even your, I, I like that, you're questioning memory, mm-hmm. you're questioning things. Yeah. How does memory work? How does memory work? Mm-hmm. And one I like, maybe you should read it. Yes, it's like this. Uh-huh, yes. Yes, exactly. This is beautiful. You may want to ask about the story of your birth. Yes, the idea of writing memoir here is about to listen carefully. Yeah, I did write this. This is lovely. The way to find a story, or at least the story that needs to be told in that moment that you're writing, is the story that emerges from a deep kind of inner listening and finding the memories that are charged, that don't want to leave, that have a certain kind of energy to them. And if you listen to them and you allow them to be born in the writing, you discover your own story because your story is basically made up of all of the memories that continue to hold the charge for you, all of the memories that are lodged in your mind, that you've secreted away. And when you can excavate that story, when you can write it down, then you can make sense of it and you can understand why you're living the way you're living and why you feel the way you feel. And you can also decide to release those memories so that you can have new memories that can define you and can shape your life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I, I loved also, and you mentioned that the metaphor, it's obviously a metaphor of, of the Ouija board. Yes. And, it's just this like letter but sentence by sentence repeating. It's beautiful. Um, like, because there is a spiritual, I think, not mm-hmm. a spiritual, but like there's an aspect to memory and the way we remember that is beyond logic and, and rational thinking. Mm-hmm. So the Ouija board is like the metaphor for this process and it suggests that there's another force bigger than ourselves, which is why I think it's always important to me to write what I feel is the story of my body living in this time because it's hard to understand why I'm having the experiences I'm having. It's bigger than me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. So, so when I'm remembering, it's not just about my memory. It's about what is important about the experiences of, you know, a mixed race woman in America in, you know, in these years, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the part of it that transcends me as a single person, you know. And, and you're a Buddhist. I'm a Buddhist, yeah. Yes. No, I think it's yeah. because there is a sense of wonder in, in your books. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about how your spirituality has changed over the years. I talk a little bit about my Buddhism, you know, because the Buddhism that I study is very much about the, the sense of emptiness and of letting go of ideas and concepts as things that dominate our minds. And so the goal of Buddhism is to not become a Buddhist. The goal is just to become free, you know. So in terms of my writing practice, I mean, I think being a student of Buddhism informs me in a way that I try to train my mind to just relax and be open. And so when I'm actually writing, there's a way in which I can, through ease of mind, create, you know. I tell my students a lot, sometimes the best work comes very easily. (laughs) And it's not that you don't have to then go back, but when you can relax your mind and be free of a lot of the doubt and the sense of 
whether or not you should be considering the work from this point of view or that point of view or this idea or that idea. But if you just let all of that go and be still, then sometimes the writing can actually come through you in a way that is very powerful and easy and free. So I have felt more and more that way as I've been a student of Buddhism. And I think that so much of my work is actually letting go of all different kinds of binaries, like letting go of the difference between you know, the idea that black and white are opposite, the idea that you know, there's one way to be an empowered woman and that, you know, the other way is, is subjugation, letting go of the idea of men need to be men in one way, they, you know, and opening it up, men, the access to the full spectrum of humanity. I mean, I'm always looking at how we are all connected and how we all can be connected as opposed to the idea of separation. And I think that's very much informed by my Buddhist practice. It's, it's interesting because another thing that I love about your work is that it's evolving. Mm. And you're accepting that like you put forth a proposition. So in Baby Love, you're talking about maybe a more traditional sense of motherhood. And then you edit an anthology which honors all these other forms mm -hmm. of um, modern love. Mm -hmm. if, if you want to talk about polyamory, express, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the complete opposite of yeah. the single mother. And then you just, each book is evolving. You, I, what I like is it's not the fixed idea. And I see that yes. going back to Buddhism. Yes, that's yeah. very, very true. I mean, there's a sense that ideas, when you're really in Buddhist practice, you're not afraid to contemplate and explore all mm -hmm. the ideas there's no fear of an idea mm -hmm. you know and so that's very helpful in my work because I don't I'm interested in whatever the, the subject is motherhood in this case from all the different points of view how does one parent and supporting all of the different ways you know as much as possible and yes ideas are not fixed they don't want to stay in your mind. Ideas, the nature of ideas is to go. It's like, that's why you can change your mind very quickly, right? You can say, oh, we're going to go here, but no, we're going to go there. Your mind just changes. Ideas in general, they are not meant to be permanent. And many people take ideas to be permanent, and so they live their whole lives by an idea that they are just thinking over and over again. But the idea is, it's more like a cloud. It just mm -hmm. wants to pass, then new ideas come, and then yeah. they just keep coming. But it's important to me to not get stuck or yeah. not to be one idea mm -hmm. of what's right, and how I want to be, what the world should be, you know, to be you know, open. And then I think it's your first memoir as well. It seems that there's a, a theme throughout the subtitle autobiography of shifting, shifting self. self. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I love that. And do you think that part of your openness to new ideas, and though I know you spoke of the difficulties as well, you wrote about those, but, you know, moving around, moving between different cultures. Oh, yes. Yeah. I think, you know, coming from different backgrounds, while it was very difficult as a young person, because I was always having to change and adapt, mm -hmm. and for me as a young person, it was very performative. I thought, okay, mm -hmm. I'm in this white community now, so I should behave this way, and that's how I'll be accepted, and I'm over here in this sort of Afro-Bohemian world, I should, this is how I should be. And that was difficult because I never felt truly authentic and truly accepted wholly. Sure. But at the same time, as I grew up and, and started to really think about that, I realized that not only did I learn how to speak many languages of different mm -hmm. kinds of people, not just the ones I was with, but I sort yeah. of started to understand how to find mm -hmm. some commonality with other people, you know, no matter yeah. where they were from. That was a, a skill that came mm -hmm. from that kind of background. But also, I had to really reckon with the fact that, yes, I was all of these 
had all these identities, but I wanted to know what was behind those identities, you know? So in yeah. a way, it was like wearing a mask and, or all these different masks. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, to take them all off and figure out what I was made of behind mm -hmm. the mask, you know? I know. I um, mean, yeah. And yes. So, yeah, right. <laughs> and so I think that definitely connected with a lot of Buddhist ideas about letting go of, of, of ideas, you know? Yeah. So I would never say that I'm not a part of all of these different culturally specific communities and traditions, but I would say that what's most important to me is to be able to connect and touch and move people in all of the worlds that I might find myself, the whole world. And I think that is definitely a result of the way I grew up. And it's interesting because my parents, when they married and had me, they always thought of me as a movement child, that's how they mm -hmm. called me, and that I would somehow be not post-racial, but that I would somehow embody a different kind of identity for the future. And while we are very far from being post-racial... <laughs> um, even now. Even now, oh yeah, especially now. I think that in some ways their vision for me has come true, even if the world doesn't see it all the time, I feel it. I yeah. feel very connected to people. Still growing up, it must be difficult, I imagine, to be seen, I don't know if spokesperson is well, but you're seen as this little adult embodying all this It's a lot of pressure. change. Mm -hmm. yes. And then when they divorced, there was no end for that idea in the middle of their, in the middle, in our family, really, the idea of being a movement child who represented this, this future, but if they couldn't even stay together, mm -hmm. you know, there was no other world to affirm that idea for me. So I had to ultimately affirm it for myself. Actually, I wasn't going to mention because I was interested in your work and your, but it's it's difficult when you're the child of famous parents. And mm -hmm. I was just in FIAC, you know, the art mm -hmm. festival mm -hmm. here, and I was looking at this painting. I didn't know what it was, and I stood back, it's very big people on the way, and it's this purple painting mm. and I stand back and I realize it's a portrait of your mother oh, it was just and I'm just thinking but that must be strange when your family is like uh -huh. not just yours it right. is belonging to the world yes I guess now it's not so strange I mean I'm so used to it I think as I was you know growing there have been different times when it has been challenging I think one of the reasons that I wrote black white and Jewish was because I felt the need to claim my own story yes you know that when you are the child of a cultural icon or someone who's very influential, there's a way in which your story is, is sort of sublimated into theirs. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to put my own truth into mm -hmm. the world. You know, that was very important to me. Because otherwise there's a kind of erasure, you know. Sure. And I'm fascinated by that, not just for me. I mean, I'm not so interested anymore, but, mm -hmm. but I still track the children of, of well-known parents because I'm very sensitive to the challenges of that. You know, many people think, oh, they get everything they want or they're spoiled or whatever it is. But people don't understand how difficult it is to find a meaningful, solid identity in the both shadow and bright lights of a famous parent. And very few actually transition and make it into a healthy life. You know, yeah. so many are tragic. And so that's something that I think a lot about and now at this point I just enjoy it you know mm -hmm. I enjoy it not for me but for the, for other people like if I had seen that painting I mm -hmm. would have felt really happy that whoever painted it mm -hmm. felt that kind of connection and affirmation mm -hmm. from her that her work has been so important to so many people is very moving to me now yeah. you know but it, obviously it hasn't always been that way my relationship to to, mm -hmm. to that has changed mm -hmm.
No, as you said, there's a lot. I mean, that's why your story is so inspiring, the way you have completely your own voice, completely your own themes of the third wave feminism. Someone whose major concentration combines both gender and transnational feminisms, the opportunity to hear and produce for Rebecca Walker is both an honor and a privilege. For me in particular, the theme of evolution as a form of revolution pops up a lot in Rebecca's work, be it in transitions of baby love or the genealogy of black cool. Walker highlights the notion that not only do ideas evolve and change, but they also have a profound impact on who we are becoming and who we build ourselves to be. As the LGBTQ Voices and Poetry editor and a fellow queer individual, the notion of blooming identity really sticks with me, not only in art, but also in my scholarly work. For example, a recent poem of mine called To Honor Thyself Through Rapid Changes and Tense displays how much I've evolved in my transition and how I as a queer person look at myself both in the past and present. Quote, He is, and we are, glittering in the peach of a melting sunset. And there is where she decays, a sweet tooth for red snow. Furthering on the notion of evolution, Walker also encourages my scholarly work on the poems of other queer individuals to track the genealogy of tenderness and love that comes with and among our chosen families. What hits home for me regarding this is how Walker discusses her evolving joy towards her family, and how being a movement child has helped her grow and adapt as a full-fledged being. Movement child, in fact, is one of my favorite lines from this piece because of this, because in it of itself is a paradox, growth and permanence, similar to thoughts of tenderness and chosen family. In this light, I ask other writers and scholars to be introspective. I ask you to look upon yourself as a movement, to further gaze upon the past with both love and critique, and ultimately move toward the future with the sound and fury. That is your movement. Well, when I graduated from college, it was a period when many young people were not at all into feminism. Or really, there was a resistance to identifying with any social change movement. And that was troublesome to me. And so I wanted to build some kind of bridge between older women and younger women and men around not necessarily and specifically feminism, the way we think of it, but just social change activism and movement. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I felt in some ways like the, the, even the term feminism and feminist was a barrier that was a problem for, for yeah. young, for another generation. And so I started this organization to do direct action projects, not just for quote-unquote women, but for women of color, for poor women, for men who were marginalized for their different expressions of masculinity. I wanted to address many different issues from reproductive freedom, but also the prison industrial complex and homophobia and hypercapitalism. I mean, I wanted There's feminism. There's a lot of stuff that needs fixing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, but I wanted feminism to grow and to, and because I didn't think, you know, oh, if you say you're a feminist. I don't know what that means. Does that mean that you are, have done work around racism and you're not racist? You know, because yeah. that if you're still racist and you're a feminist, it's not good. It doesn't work for me. I'm not, I'm not sure. so happy. Yeah. You know, so I wanted to, to really challenge the notion of a social change movement based on one factor. 
right. you know, gender. I wanted to expand and make sure that every social change movement integrates all mm-hmm. movements for change. Wow, and it's and it's such a radical idea, but it's so natural. Yes. Yes. I, yes, and I thought that it was strategic for me too because I thought people my age at that time, it was either find a way to make engagement positive and interesting and exciting, or lose them completely. Yeah, exactly. Yes, you have to. So. Now this is switching tracks. I'm thinking about. You've made it the recent shift. You lived for many years. I don't know how many years in Maui. No, ten years. Wow. Okay. Nine, nine years, something like that. Yeah. So that to me seems like a very spiritual calm place. And now you're now Los Angeles. I, I moved to Maui because I wanted to give my son a kind of idyllic island childhood. Yeah. And also, I was actually working on a day, and I felt like yeah. I needed to be on an island. Mm-hmm. that reminded me of that island. I was very drawn to being there because I thought it would help me finish the book, which it did. And also I had an opportunity to go, so I figured I should take this. Yeah. It was possible. And it was wonderful. And I miss it. It was such yes. a beautiful place. You'll go back, I'm I'll sure. I'll go back. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you know, at a certain point I realized my son, I had an idea for him, but he didn't like the ocean. He didn't want to surf. He didn't want to do any of the things that I thought were so wonderful about Maui. He yeah. wanted to be in New York. He wanted to be in the city. Mm-hmm. And also, the world there was not quite big enough, I didn't feel, for him. He wanted to do other things. And also for me, I started to become more and more interested in writing for television because I think that so many people are watching and getting their stories and their ideas from television. Mm-hmm. It may bring them back to the book, you know, in some yes. ways. But again, I think I've always been most interested in getting the ideas out. Yeah, whatever form. Whatever form, you know, yeah. telling the story in whatever form. So it seemed we, we put Ade into motion to be adapted into a film, then Black, White, and Jewish was optioned. Um, oh, as well, I don't know. Yeah, to be a Excellent. series. And then Black Cool was optioned to become a series. So a lot of things started to happen in Los Angeles. Wow. So it's, it seemed to make sense to move. But it's a big, it's very, I mean, the city is, I miss the ocean. I miss uh-huh. this, the, the peace of it. But I also had to travel so much to do readings and to do talks mm-hmm. and to just to work. You know, I had to, it was like I had a five-hour added commute, you know, on the okay. plane. So it, it started to become more difficult. So this is, I didn't realize, I only, I, I guess Madonna is attached to mm-hmm. possibly to write to that, write and I didn't realize that your other books were, I, I wanted to ask you, how do you condense all that depth of experience in, in Ade and the others, there's some of those beautiful sentences, there's mm-hmm. one, I, yes, like this, how yes. would you adapt that to film? I just, that oh, encapsulates so much, well, even more, but... Um, after he left, I lay on my thin mattress thinking about the unusual potency of our attraction. I knew nothing about him, and yet I wanted to see him again. I had too much power, I thought. I might consume him out of my own curiosity simply because I could. I could stay or go. He could not. He had too much power, I thought. He could reject me. He could break me in two. I think something like this, this would have to be dialogue. You know, this idea of, after I meet him, wondering about the dynamic of our relationship of being a sort of powerful American woman, only because I had the the ability to come and go and leave the island or stay. And he didn't have those same opportunities. She could be writing this in her journal or something, so you would still get the the sense of the writing. You know know what I mean? Because I agree with you. 
Yeah, there's, and there's so many moments in our day, and I don't know if we want to talk a little bit more about that, the events, the, the sure. story, the Whatever version. What? Yes, why, why did you choose to make it this memoir, novel? Well, my first two memoirs, I felt very strongly that they should be memoir. I don't know, definitely for black, white, and Jewish, there was a sense of, again, wanting to claim my own story and my own narrative, and also, I felt at that point in my life, I was in my 20s, very fragmented, you know, and I needed to create a, a sort of integrated, cohesive Rebecca, like mm -hmm. self, you know, even mm -hmm. if it was symbolically in a book, I needed to have something that I could look at and hold and I could see that all the different experiences that I had could actually coexist, you know, right. and so memoir was clearly very well suited mm -hmm. to that because it had to be about my journey. Baby Love is very similar. That was more of a polemic, more of a, a book that was grounded deeply in a sort of cultural idea that the, the, the difference between generations, what does it mean to be a mother, how are young women and, and people grappling with parenting at this particular moment, like that was very much grounded in, in ideas that were in the, in the cultural zeitgeist or the cultural imagination to me at that moment. And so I was using my own life to explore those, those issues. So that was very clearly also a memoir needed to be. That was the form that, that suited that material to me. This book is more of a love letter. It's more of an ode to a human being and a relationship and a place and a, and a, and a family. And it's more of a, a portrait of a relationship. And so in that way, it's as if a painter painting a portrait was looking at it from afar. So there's a way in which, in looking at it from a distance, there was much more in my sort of objective creativity necessary in, in looking at it. It was like looking at that, that building over there. <laughs> like it's not, you know, it's like trying to paint a picture of an emotional experience. And so there was, there was a need to create some distance. And, and fiction served that, you know. And also I wanted to take care of some of the people in the book. I didn't feel that they needed to be exposed in the same way that some of the other people in, in my memoirs had been exposed. And and I wanted to do certain things, you know. I wanted um, the main character to not, you know, to only be named by him, so she doesn't have a name throughout mm -hmm. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to sort of use symbolism and metaphor in a, in a, in a more literary way, basically, yeah. to use more of the tools of the craft. Yeah. And, you know, while you can do that in memoir, you know, this, this blend of autobiographical, this whatever this is, autofic, gave mm -hmm. me more freedom. I was able to use more tools. I was able to craft the narrative differently. I was able to get more distance. I was able to take care of people and, and sort of... I was able to make the meaning that I wanted from the experience as opposed to... So I was able to shape the experience in a way that had a more, a more, um, I don't know how to say it, but a more sort of objective and painterly quality. Sure, you don't have, you're not trapped by the fidelity to pure facts. Exactly, maybe. yes. Yeah. I don't mm. want to put words in. No, but <laughs> no. yes, but it, it, I needed the distance. Yeah. No, it's a nice freedom, yeah. to, I imagine. Yeah. I, I needed to feel like I could take liberties if I had to. Yeah. And after that experience, well, I know you're working now with film and television, but do you feel that you'll be doing more mm -hmm. in that direction? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I'm working on another book now. Oh, wow. 
I'm looking at another anthology. For some reason, I keep doing anthologies. I don't know why they don't do well, but I, I find them important. Like, I, it's always a, an idea that I do, and I know that I don't have much enough to say about it to fill mm -hmm. a book, but I know that interesting minds have been thinking about it forever. Yeah. So I'm doing an anthology on women and money, which is something okay. that I'm very interested in. That's needed. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I'm going to expand Black Pool and do, like, mm -hmm. another volume about that. Right. And then I'm writing this other book that's like, that's autofiction. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Cool. Well, I studied with some wonderful visionary scholars and historians when I was in college at Yale. <clears throat> Robert, Robert Ferris yeah. Thompson and Sylvia Boone specifically. And they were very instrumental charting the, the, the West African culture and how it has manifested throughout the world, wherever Africans have, have gone. And one of the things that was very interesting to me when I was studying was this notion that three words, funky, cool, and hip, all three came from West African culture. So we would not have those ideas. We would not have everything. We wouldn't have the words, and we wouldn't have all of what they mean to people if they hadn't come from Africa. As I was thinking about cool, I was thinking a lot about how the cool of, of African-American and, and African culture around the world is often appropriated. And we have come to think of cool as being a universal means of expression. And even though it's a kind of essentialist position, and I'm not usually an essentialist, I think that it was important to start to think about cool as being an African cultural product, you know, that it is something that is intrinsic to African culture. In the same way that I've said, that yoga is intrinsic to, to Indian culture. You know, you don't say, where's yoga from? And say, you know, like Russia. You know, like, no. You know, cool is actually something that has different distinct elements, just like yoga has different poses and different beliefs. And, and in the translation of it, as it's come over, much of that has been lost. So in looking at the study that my mentors did, I came to understand that cool has its own cosmology, it has its own elements that are that are not understood, you know, all, all the time because it's been so reduced, so much, you know, reduction and appropriation. So Black Cool is to kind of, what was a project of sort of reclaiming the whole cosmology. So cool is not just about, you know, wearing sunglasses and whatever, you know, is about retaining dignity in the face of extreme degradation. It's about improvisation, it's about intellectual rigor, it's about resistance, it's about audacity. You know, there are all these different elements of cool, and I wanted to, to really, again, young people are so in need of tools, you know, to, to, you know and black cool, that, that cosmology has kept black people and Africans okay for many, 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 many years yeah. because of these different elements. Sure. It's a form of resistance and all these things that are... Well, there are yeah. all of these different... It's like... You know, like when you look at, at yoga, for instance, you have this po posture and this posture is, you know, you, you have a certain breathing that's kind of breathing that's good for ventilation and health of your mind. You have postures that are good for your lower back. You have postures that are good for your digestion. In Black Cool, Cool is a full cosmology. It has ideas that are good for your mind, it has ideas that are good for your body, it has ideas that are good for your spirituality. So to unpack what those are, mm -hmm. that's like what the project and all this. And I love it, just anything yeah, swagger. Yeah, yeah. is about, about confidence and optimism. Mm -hmm. You know, the posse is about moving as a part of a family, an extended mm -hmm. family and a group. You know, that's mm -hmm. part of what has kept 
people alive, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to sort of give young people back those ideas, you know, yeah. so they're not just, you know, the thing that sometimes they, it's like I'm too cool for school, you know, it's like, no, you know, cool originally had within it the demand of intellectual rigor. If you are not studying, if you are not smart, that was not cool. So the next, you know, it's a project of reclamation. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students such as the producer of this podcast, Regan Kofink. Our digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee, and Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.